I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Bittersweet return. Doron, Raz and Aviv Kat Sacher are among the youngest of the Israeli hostages released today. Their cousin tells us about the moment he could finally believe they were home and safe. The calm between the storms. Gaza now has four days to recover from seven weeks of intense bombardment. A humanitarian worker in the territory tells us it won't be nearly enough to meet the need he's seeing. Putting time back on their side, a one-year pause on the usual statute of limitations on sexual assault cases in New York gave many survivors a second chance to seek justice. We'll reach a lawyer who says that pause should be permanent. A master of movements. The late Joan Harrow was much admired for her grace as a dancer and for her courage as an advocate for the people of Chile after her husband, Victor Hara, was killed for opposing the Pinochet regime. Roadblocks, climate change has made the usual and already tough ways of getting supplies to a remote part of the Northwest Territories increasingly unreliable. One mayor tells us if his community is to get those much-needed deliveries, it needs Ottawa to deliver. And kind of a flipper-flopper. An endangered sea turtle that got lost was found frozen and near death in the Bay of Fundy, but not to worry, now he's chillaxing in Bermuda. As it happens, the Friday edition, radio that guesses he wasn't dressed warmly, despite his turtleneck. For seven weeks, they've occupied a limbo between fear and grief. But today, some of the families of the more than 200 hostages abducted by Hamas felt emotions they haven't felt in a while. Hope and joy. Sounds from Tel Aviv tonight in a plaza dubbed Hostages Square as 24 hostages were released and made their way to Israel. They were released as part of a deal that includes a four-day ceasefire and the release of 39 Palestinian women and teenagers from Israeli prisons. We'll talk more about the ceasefire in a moment. But first, among the released hostages are Doran Katsasher and her daughters, four-year-old Raz and two-year-old Aviv. Chen Dory Roberts, who goes by Dory, is Ms. Katsasher's cousin. We reached him in Austin. Dory, there's been so much buildup and so much anxiety, I, I can only imagine, for all of the families waiting for news. What did you do when you found out that Doron, Raz, and Aviv were coming home? I took a, a big, deep breath. Mm-hmm. I checked my phone. My phone was, was going off. Everything, yeah. all the messages from all the groups, everybody was trying to reach out. And it hit me really hard, and I, I got really emotional. I had to step away for a little bit. And kind of like take a moment for myself to appreciate um, this is like the day after Thanksgiving and 
it's got a lot of impact of, yeah. of what it means to be thankful and grateful for for life itself and for family and loved ones. So it was a very emotional moment for me and my family. Have you had a chance to talk to them yet? I have not um, got a chance to talk to them yet. I want to give them the space yeah. and uh, privacy to reunite with their father and husband, Yoni Asher, who's been carrying such a big load on his on his shoulders throughout this entire day, almost 50, almost 50 days uh, till today since uh, they were kidnapped. And they need some, some alone time to catch up and to uh, be together with all that. Her mom, Efrat Katz, my aunt, was murdered uh, in mm-hmm. front of her eyes on the way to Gaza Strip. And there's just a lot of going on right now for them. So I'll, I'm very glad that they're home. I just want to be respectful and give them the time. I know that they're safe. And one day soon, hopefully in the holidays, I'll be able to uh, to go there and get reunited with uh, with them together and hug them and hold and tell them like how proud I am for, for them to hold for such a long time and in such a hard conditions all throughout all this time. Yeah, that's your, that's your plan then to to travel there as soon as you can. I want to travel there as soon as I can. We still have many other hostages. We're still under war, and there's still a, a lot going on. Uh, I still have uh, my aunt partner for twenty years still hold captive, Gadi Moses, and a half cousin, um, Ravid Katz, who's still held hostage. We want to make sure that every single one of those hostages held by the Hamas will return home as soon as possible. Okay, we we're very happy and very very grateful for the gift that we have received back in our life. But we want to make sure that every single family that have uh, a family member as a hostage will be able to reunite and rejoice and celebrate the holidays with the loved ones. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about Raz and Aviv? They're so little. They're so little. They're such charming little girls. Love life. Love to play and cook. Love to travel with the parents. Love their open air spaces. Love nature. Uh, they're a little silly. They're just the perfect little two girls. They just love to be with with people. Love being a kid and being uh, with fam with family. So we're so happy that they're back now in the, in the safe arms of their dads and and their family. I can't. I can't imagine the reunion and the emotion. Um, yeah, for sure. Do you have any sense? I know you haven't spoken to them directly, but through the chats that you're having uh, with people who are there, do you have any sense of of how they're doing right now in these early hours? I, I'm pretty sure that everybody's is happy and very joyful, and we're taking this moment to celebrate uh, our. reunited with with our family and friends but i know that everybody knows that we're still a long long way from completing the mission of returning every single hostages back to their loved ones so we're taking a little moment of celebration but we still have a long ways to go and hopefully it's not to be a, a long a long way but it's gonna be a short way now that we found those uh those paths that we're on and hopefully we'll be able to get them out of heart's way and out of uh, being uh, a political card and for negotiation and and be back to their life as, as civilians and as not as hostages. Hope and optimism are certainly difficult to come by right now. Yeah. Does this four-day pause and this deal so far 
Does it give you a little bit of both of those things right now? Or is it that same roller coaster that you were feeling before today's release? It's. I think I can relate more to the roller coaster because every day that passed and every new list that published and every new person that crossed the border, it's a it's a wave of hope. But at the same time, we have to remember that like we're not going to be able to really reunite um, uh, or completely celebrate a a victory be- before all the hostages are returned. And even if they're all back home, we still lost 1,400 people in one day. Those are family members, they are friends, they are colleagues. It's a very bittersweet, if you know what I'm saying. It's, it's really a moment that you can just breathe and know that your loved ones are safe. But we buried my aunt right next to my mom that that's where the last time I saw her three months ago at my mom's funeral when she was holding me and telling me that you know everything will be all right and now she's there laying next to her in the in in, in the ground buried right next to my mom so we all lost somebody really important in our life during this horrible war and we want this to to be over as soon as possible. We don't celebrate death on either side. We mourn, we 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 grieve for the for the loss of any human life. It doesn't matter on each side. But we are allowing ourselves to take this moment to celebrate and to rejoice with our loved ones. But nobody feels like this mission is complete. We still have a long way to to make sure that everybody's safe back home. Dory, I'm sorry for your loss, but but glad that you you have some good news today. Thank you for your time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate that. Jen Dory Roberts is the cousin of Doran Katz-Asher. She and her two young daughters were among the 24 hostages released by Hamas today. We reached Jen Dory Roberts in Austin. As we mentioned, in addition to the release of those Israeli hostages, 39 Palestinians have reportedly been released from Israeli custody, many of them minors. And in Gaza, there is a temporary pause in the fighting for the first time in seven long weeks. The four-day ceasefire marks a pivotal moment in the war, and it will allow crucial aid to enter Gaza. But it's also a fleeting moment due to expire early next week. UNICEF spokesperson James Elder is among the humanitarian workers who've been able to enter the Gaza Strip in the midst of these negotiations. That's where we reached him. James, what are you hearing from people today in Gaza? They're expressing a huge amount of of exhaustion. And it honestly, Neil, it feels like fear and sorrow have sort of taken root in everything here. Um, Certainly, I've not encountered this many children with wounds of war. I'm in the south, remembering it's the north that's borne the, the greatest brunt of this. So they're telling me, they're showing me their exhaustion, their fatigue, that the parents are so terrified that they're losing options to look after their children. Nothing can be more fearful for a parent. And they all tell me, every single person I listened to today told me they lost a loved one. Every single person. And I sat with dozens of people today. We're not saying specifically where you are for security reasons to make sure you're you're safe, but what can you tell us about what you've been seeing and, and what it feels like for you there? Yeah, I, I mean, you basically today, is I'm seeing, you know, the, the devastation of, of a place, essentially. Um, there's a 
palpable sort of tension um, in the air and everything. You know, the whole place bears the marks of, of distress, whether it's the way people look or whether it's just shattered walls and broken windows or people sleeping in cars that have been damaged. And again, this is the South. Um, a lot of people just want to get back to the north. They're desperate to get back and see family, try and look for family, try and recover anything they can. But the population has been given a clear sense that they're not able to, they're not allowed to. And this was spreading amongst the communities even as I was talking to them. But there is a great eagerness, of course, and I can so understand why they want to go back. But I think many understand it's not safe and others know there is nothing of theirs to go back to. Does this pause in fighting then? given everything you've said, leave any room for them to be optimistic? It's a great question. No. It reminded me of Ukraine, of you don't say how are you to someone, because out of their politeness and their, you know, beautiful cultural respect, they, they will answer, but you know the look in their eyes is like, well, look around you. Um, so I didn't see that. I, I still saw people laugh and speak um, in, in the day, in the, in the, in the you know, going among their daily business, but I saw a lot of stress upon people's faces and anyone I able to sit down and talk to, then unfortunately none, any sense of optimism was completely absent from their voice. You mentioned the aid that has managed to get in so far. What is in those trucks? How will it help people given the level of devastation you're speaking of? Look, today was the biggest humanitarian convoy since October 7. So more than 100,000 litres of fuel, you know, large-scale um, medical operation, food, water, medical supplies, all these things are absolutely critical. For UNICEF, that's going to be you know, millions of litres of water is what we're looking for. Again, medicines, hygiene kits, you know, the number of adolescent girls I saw today, just hour-long queues for them to get to a bathroom. It's, 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 it's horrendous for a, for a teenage girl here. Um, and, of course, it's getting cold. You know, it's getting cold, so, you know, night times, we need tents, we need blankets. All those things are critical. So today was a very good starting point. We will do the same tomorrow, the same the day after that, but, but we hope we can do the same for days and weeks on end. Obviously, UNICEF focuses uh, on children, and earlier this week, your executive director, Catherine Russell, was warning the UN Security Council and wrote uh, a piece in the New York Times as well about the threats to children, but specifically child wasting, which is the most severe form of malnutrition in children. Are you seeing evidence of that firsthand as well? Certainly what I saw today was large numbers of children who have they were suffering from gastro and diarrhea, and this is the first stage of a child getting sick. Well, the father I spoke to, with a two-year-old and a nine-month-old, both really sick. And he's like, I, I didn't have clean water to give them. He knew the water was not from a safe source, and he knew some of the water was salty. Um, highly educated man, he just had no choice. Uh, and that's the context to have. So when we start to see that en masse, that's when we really risk you know, a, a mix of disease outbreak and, and malnutrition to sadly go hand in hand. That father I spoke to, who had the two-year-old and the nine-month-old getting sicker and sicker from diarrhea, uh, he said to me, you know, James, in perfect English, said, James, there's only one thing I want to do when this war ends. I, I asked him what that was. He just said, I just want to cry. 
he just means he's he's at his wit's end. He's doing everything he can. He knows as a father, he's got to keep that that the strength up, the the strength of appearances that he's he's on top of this. But he knows he's not. He knows that parents have lost the control to look after their children, to keep them safe from bombardments, to provide them with safe water, to be able to cook for them. He knows that, and now he's just trying to hold on with that brave face. How are you preparing then for when this? Ceasefire ends, James, and fighting resumes. Yeah, well, very good question. It's difficult for me as a if I, if I have I wear my two hats. I feel a, a me. One is a humanitarian. One is a father. I, I, I can't quite still believe that we are literally going to have a respite for four or five days, and then honestly going back to seeing hundreds of children killed. I mean, it's, it, on average reported deaths for more than 100 children a day. We're going to return to that. I, 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 I'm staggered by that. I'm bewildered by that, and I'm heartbroken by that, particularly as I've seen that today. And yet, as you rightly allude to, that's what we are being told. So I, I, I know that you know, many organizations are very brave, brave colleagues who've been on the ground here throughout, have plans for now, for tomorrow, for the next day, for seven days' time, and that will that will cover all these eventualities. I mean, everyone I think has a natural impulse to protect children. I, I just hope the scale of this crisis is not actually breaking that. James, I thank you for your time. Stay safe. No, Neil, thank you. Thanks so much for the interest. James Elder is a spokesperson for UNICEF. We reached him in the southern Gaza Strip. As a dancer, Joan Haro was interested in precision, passion, and control, all three of which were also crucial factors in her activism. Ms. Hara died this month at the age of 96. She had dedicated much of her life and work to seeking justice for those murdered during and after Chile's 1973 military coup. That included her husband, the acclaimed folk singer Victor Hara, who was killed for opposing General Augusto Pinochet, the military leader of the coup, who became the dictatorial leader of the country. Joan Hara was from England, but she fell in love with Victor in Chile. In 2008, she spoke to Al Jazeera about her husband's death and why she kept fighting for him. I have to say that uh, it's not for uh, the wish for revenge. It's not, not because of a sort of being filled with hatred or anger, really. As my own daughter said uh, very recently, this isn't for the past, it's for the future. It's for the young people who de- today who have to see that justice can be done and that the truth can be found. It's very important uh, for people in Chile, for the Chilean society. Kate Clark is the author of the book Chile in My Heart and a friend of the late Joan Hara. We reached her near the town of Matlock, UK. Kate, that was your friend Joan Hara speaking... In 2008, does it sound like your friend? It does. It makes me feel a bit emotional to to hear her voice after all these this time. Yeah, I was struck <clears throat> by by one of the things you wrote in your piece honoring Joan. Mm. Uh, you you said the last time you saw her, she was 89 at the time, 
so several mm. years ago, but you said uh, she was still an interesting conversationalist, straight-backed, and still walked yeah. with a dancer's yeah. poise. What did you talk well, about when right. you last saw her? What did we talk about? We talked about uh, the work of the Victor Jara Foundation, mm. which she set up when it was possible after the uh, the end of the dictatorship. She set up the Victor Jara Foundation to try and um, keep alive Victor's name, celebrating his life, his records, old LPs, anything that had to do with Victor Jara. And I, I took one or two posters that we had produced here in London in the Solidarity Campaign. She was she was an accomplished dancer, uh, a mother, but her life, you know, yes. she dedicated her life, as you've been describing there and as we heard in the clip as well, to getting justice for for yes. her late husband and for keeping his memory alive mm. and speaking out for, for other victims of the Pinochet regime. But what did she mm. tell you about what that was like for her, you know, having so much of her she, identity yeah. intertwined mm. with all of that work? She was very brave in those early years uh, in the 70s when she had come back from Chile in such terrible circumstances after having found his body in the, mm -hmm. in the morgue. Or, or somebody told her where his body was and she saw his broken hands and all that. She just coped with life and, and tried to do her best to keep Victor's name alive and, and also to... Um, to, to do what she knew that Victor would have wanted, which was to continue the fight for all the other prisoners who, you know, ha hadn't been killed initially like he had. He'd been killed. And for the disappeared people, because that was like a new phenomenon at that time, that people could be detained and then their relatives couldn't find out anything about them. I, I thought it remarkable that, that she said that she felt fortunate and lucky, given that at least, yeah, despite... The the horrific way mm. her husband was killed, is that he was assassinated, mm. that at least she and her family knew what happened to him. Yes. Well, that's that's right. And, uh, you know, she did at least have her two daughters who were very supportive, but they were going through early teenage years, mm -hmm. you know, when they lived in London. So it was a pretty sad time. And I, when she told me that she was going back to Chile in 1984, I think it was. Yeah, so it was ten before years the after. end of the mm -hmm. dictatorship. Yeah. She um, very bravely decided to go back. And I was happy about that because she always told me that she had felt happier as a woman, as a person. She had sort of realized herself more in Chile than she ever mm -hmm. did in Britain. It was the country that she loved. It was not only Victor that she loved, but she loved the country. Both of so her. So she, she was happier in Chile yeah. than she was in Britain. And both of her passions. I mean, clearly she she was able yeah. to to carry out and carry out both of them there. Yes. Well, she was. I remember when we. I don't know if it was the. I think it was was the last time that we met her and we, we, we took a taxi to her house and she was still able to lift her leg right up, you know. She was <laughs> she she was still a dancer who practiced dance, you know. She and she oh she had a lovely um a lovely a lovely straight back and, and uh, lovely blue eyes, very very startling blue eyes and a and a very infectious sort of smile. But she was a very private person. She was you know, she wasn't um, someone who loved to be in the limelight. Not at all. No, she was quite retiring, uh, but a good friend, a good, a good person, a very kind person. And uh, I, I admired her greatly. I think she 
played a wonderful role because I often thought to myself, if it had been Ricardo, my husband, who'd been killed, would I have been able to live all those decades as a widow, you know, without personal sort of, well, without the kind of happiness that having a, a loved mm. Uh, man, a loved man in your life brings, or loved partner. <laughs> yeah. Did she feel that she had achieved justice? You know, no matter how satisfied she might have been when she she knew that these people were at last being put in prison, because it's quite recent that they've mm -hmm. been put in prison. It's not, you know, so they've been free for a long, a long time. But at the same time, I think her real satisfaction was in 2019 when in this mass protest that there were in October 2019 when throughout the country and all the big cities there were really, really massive demonstrations um, for very simple things like for free education, against poverty, for, for decent housing, all those things. That's what the protests were about. And in those protests, people, young people, very young people who had, couldn't have, I mean, they didn't live during the time that Victor Haro lived but they sang his song you know not only el derecho de vivir in paz the, the right to live in freedom in the, in peace sorry in peace but other songs of his as well and and the, it was taken up by the mass of the mm -hmm. marchers and i think that must have given her enormous satisfaction to to know that the young generation was also singing victor Harris songs kate thank you for sharing your memories it's a pleasure that was author Kate Clark talking about her late friend, the British dancer and activist Joan Hara. We reached Ms. Clark near Matlock, UK. It's not the first time a young sea turtle has ended up on Nova Scotian shores, but it is the first time in a while that the story has a happy ending. After a week-long stay with some veterinarians, an endangered green sea turtle named Scotty landed in Bermuda yesterday, where he will be returned to the wild. Kathleen Martin is the executive director of the Canadian Sea Turtle Network. She was with veterinarians Pat Pryor and Chris Harvey-Clark as Scotty was being packed up for his big journey. If you listen closely, you can hear Scotty's flippers slapping against Chris's hands. So here's Scotty the turtle. She's in beautiful shape, weighing in at 5.17 kilos. We've managed to not have her traumatize herself, which has been amazing because she's been so active in captivity. And she's looking really good. She's just about ready for transport. We started salting her yesterday. And you can see her plastering looks great. Super vigorous, and believe you me, it's she's got a lot of force in those muscles. She's going to do really well in the, in the in the wild. Last night, what I found is if you just hold her front pecs for yeah, a second, she'll slow down. She'll stop here. Yeah. Okay, if you want to just restrain her, I'm just going to put these eye drops in. There you go, sweetheart. Okay, Let's so start no one likes eye drops, Scotty. There. Yeah. Humans, turtles, no them. <laughs> You didn't have to listen that closely as it turned out. That last voice was Kathleen Martin, and she told Jeff Douglas, host of Main Street in Halifax, the rest of Scotty's story. 
Dale and Peggy Brown found her, as you noted yeah. earlier on Thursday. They were walking the Scotts Bay Beach, which they do daily to collect garbage, yeah. um, and uh, which is amazing. Um, and they called us, and we picked her up Thursday. I hope I have my days, the weeks, the yeah. days have all blended with Scotty's experience here, yeah. um, and gave us a call, and uh, we were able to collect her and get her to veterinary care right away. Um, they, sorry, they called uh, Mars, which is the Marine Animal Response right, Society, yeah. and then our colleagues at Mars called us, uh, and then we were able to get her uh, right away and get her to, to great veterinary care with uh, Chris and Pat as you heard. What was she like? What was her condition when she was found? She was lethargic for sure. At first, um, Peggy and Dale weren't sure if she was alive or not. In fact, they'd found other sea turtles that had died previously and so yeah. just assumed this one was also dead and picked her up and when they, when and they, as they described to me, Dale was telling me when they, uh, when Peggy picked her up, I assumed he, she was collecting a dead animal and then Scotty lifted up her little head and she was like, <gasps> and then Peggy carried her about a kilometer back to, to take her off of the beach which was a life-saving move really and the fact that they found her when she was still she was clearly hypothermic but she wasn't beyond uh rescue obviously right? which is typically we find them and they've died already or they're she almost dead. looks very healthy and quite quite robust yeah like a solid little creature yeah when we first found her she was t she seemed really tired right when yeah. we got her and she was her yeah. head was really resting low down and she didn't have a ton of energy and she was cold her internal temperature chris was taking it um was quite cold um so it took a bit for her to warm up but you can see even after a couple of days how much how well she did and how much more robust she became and and so and she was well enough to travel right so typically like i said she's the second turtle in 25 years that has not died within 48 hours that was Kathleen Martin, the executive director of the Canadian Sea Turtle Network, speaking with the CBC's Jeff Douglas, formerly As It Happens as Jeff Douglas, yesterday. Hey, Jeff. Yesterday, you could file a lawsuit over a sexual assault in New York State no matter how long ago it happened. Today, you can't. That's because the Adult Survivors Act expired at midnight. The act was a special exemption to the statute of limitations on sexual abuse cases in the state, but it was only open for one year. With last night's deadline looming, cases were filed against high-profile figures like New York Mayor Eric Adams, Sean P. Diddy Combs, Axel Rose, and Jamie Foxx. The law also enabled E. Jean Carroll's case against Donald Trump. The total number of suits filed was estimated to be upwards of 2,500. Susan Cromiller is a New York attorney specializing in sexual abuse cases and the co-founder of the Survivors Law Project, which seeks to see the Adult Survivors Act reinstated. We reached her in Brooklyn. Susan, the door that was open to survivors yesterday is now closed. So what will that mean for people in New York State now? So... Our hope is that the window will be reopened mm. and there are legislators who are uh, talking about that as a serious possibility. Um, and of course, we're advocating very strongly for the window to be reopened. But as of now, it means that survivors, adult survivors uh, whose claims are otherwise time barred because the assault happened too long ago, um, if they didn't file during the window period that's now closed, it means that they're no longer able to file. What message does it send to survivors when you have a door like that closed? I think 
one main reason that a lot of survivors didn't file in the window is because they didn't know about it. And so it's very frustrating for them when when they hear later on that there was this window and they had this opportunity that they didn't know about. We saw this also with the Child Victim Act where we still get calls uh, from uh, survivors of child sex abuse who didn't know that they had this opportunity to bring their claims that was now gone. It's tough <laughs> because, you know, before the window opened, these survivors thought that justice was unavailable to them. I mean, and they were right. Uh, and so once the window closes again, you know, for some who never knew about it, it, it just came and went unnoticed. Uh, but then people who find out about it too late, uh, it's, it's, it can be very, very difficult. We often hear about the length of time it can take for people to come forward. Why is it important mm-hmm. to have a wider time period for people to so, be able to tell their stories? Statute of limitations in general are uh, designed to protect you know, wrongdoers or people accused of wrongdoing. In other words, we have the right to move on with our lives and not worry that someone will come after us for something we did 20 years ago. Um, It's very sound logic when it comes to things like a breach of contract or a slip and fall where people experience something and then they decide what to do and then they move on. But sexual abuse, people process trauma differently. It takes time. It takes years often, uh, sometimes decades, for survivors to even recognize what happened to them, let alone to feel uh, that pursuing legal action is necessarily the right step for them. So um, I think that as a society, we need to just better understand that the traditional model of statute of limitations doesn't work for sex abuse. We need a different model and we need to decide that we value the voices of survivors and survivors' right to seek justice more than we value the offender's right to move on from what they've done. Do you have a sense, based on on the influx of cases leading up to the deadline, that there's a different kind of understanding and maybe a higher likelihood of a shift to the kind of model you were talking about there? You know, I certainly hope so. Um, I don't like to speculate with respect to specific Mm -hmm. legislative actions, but I certainly hope that other states will follow suit. You know, I think New York was only the second state to open this type of window for adult survivors as opposed to child uh, survivors. And I think we've seen how important it is, a chance for survivors today to hold their perpetrators accountable. We're just, we're living in a different world now than we used to. And the shame and stigma is still there. The fear is still there, but it's not prohibitive in the way that it used to be. As we mentioned in our introduction, and we've certainly been seeing over the last uh, several weeks and days, Lawsuits being filed against very high-profile men, politicians, celebrities, those make the headlines, certainly. But are they typical of the type of claims being filed over the past year? I wouldn't say they're atypical, but, you know, for every high-profile case, there are countless cases of sex abuse 
against marginalized individuals. Prison abuse is extremely common, and I believe actually the majority of the cases filed have been on behalf of prisoners, certainly a a very large portion. Um, And we have filed some cases on behalf of prisoners ourselves. This is the type of abuse that goes unnoticed and is so widespread. These cases of disenfranchised, marginalized populations where abusers just think they can get away with it. I mean, that's sort of the common thread often with celebrities and with these powerful institutions is that they truly don't think anyone is powerful enough Mm -hmm. uh, to stand up for them. They understand how scary they are (laughs) as, you know, uh, celebrities are well-resourced, well-heeled. They understand that uh, making public accusations against them is extremely daunting so that that same logic applies to protect institutions as well as celebrities. But we don't hear about those cases as much. Certainly, I would imagine a, a large number of the cases involve women. But I think it's also important to stress that it's probably not only women that are coming absolutely, forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, we filed we file cases regularly on behalf of male survivors, and we're very proud to. Men are survivors, non, non-binary individuals are survivors. And I think it's always important to note that transgender individuals are by far at the greatest risk of sexual violence. Susan, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for your attention to this issue. Susan Crummeler is an attorney and the co-founder of the Survivors Law Project. We reached her in Brooklyn, New York. Hi, I'm Asha Tomlinson. And I'm David Common. And we're hosts of CBC Marketplace. We're award-winning investigative journalists that want to help you avoid clever scams, unsafe products, and sketchy services. Our TV show has been Canada's top investigative consumer watchdog for more than 50 years. But this is our first podcast. CBC Marketplace podcast is available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. In an ordinary summer, the town of Norman Wells, Northwest Territories, gets its supplies through barge shipments coming in on the Mackenzie River. And in the cold months, those essential items come via a winter road. But both of those routes are becoming increasingly unreliable. This summer, low water levels on the Mackenzie meant several barge shipments couldn't arrive via the normal routes. And meanwhile, as temperatures get warmer, the window for a functioning winter road keeps getting shorter. This week, representatives from the community in the Satu region were in Ottawa for the second time this month, sounding the alarm over the situation. Frank Pope was one of them. He's the mayor of Norman Wells, and that's where we reached him. Mayor Pope, what's your sense of things right now? How reliable is that road going to be this winter? Uh, We have great concerns on how long it's going to last. Uh, Because of the way it's built, it is actually just frozen snow packed on a frozen muskeg. And this year... We are having such warm temperatures already this winter. Uh, we need 35 to 40 below for the next month and a half to make this road even work for a short period of time. And we're very, very concerned that this road, if it does open, will not last very long. In the recent years, the winter road has actually opened right around Christmas uh, for very light traffic. 
And then about the beginning of February, if the road gets frozen hard enough and then they can increase load limits, we can usually go from about the 1st of February to, say, the end of March. But even in the last few years, it's got from the 1st of February to about the middle of March, and then the road starts to deteriorate very quickly. How does that impact life for people there, the 750 people who, who call it home? Well, we're about 3,000 people in our region. Sure. Norman Wells is a hub community for five total communities. What happened uh, in a couple of years ago, in fact, uh, a lot of people from the north would uh, drive south with their trucks, go and do a whole bunch of resupply purchases. A lot of them last uh, few years ago did not even make it back. The road went out so quickly. Mm. They were out there with their trucks and their vehicles, ended up having to drive to Yellowknife, fly home and leave their trucks down south till the barge system opened again in June. So um, we've had some serious impacts already, and we are sort of forecasting we could have more of the same. And summer is becoming an issue as well. There are usually shipments then as well, right? So tell us what's happening then. Okay, normally we would have about, I'd say, eight barge shipments into Norman Wells and into this region uh, this year, the route north of us, between Fort Good Hope and uh, Norman Wells, is a set of rapids. That rapids came prominent very early, creating a blockage for traffic going south, uh, sorry, going further north from here. We were able to get a lot of our shipments in early in the season by mid-August into late August. The, the route was already in trouble. The coast guard were having trouble navigating the river. The barge system were able to still do partial navigation up mm-hmm. as far as Toledo and Norman Wells. But then they had a big set of wildfires down south, creating a problem, which was a double whammy to us. They evacuated from Hay River the people who work in the harbor there who load the barges. So while we still had some navigable waters... We had nobody to load the boats. We did get a few extra loads in eventually, but I think we ended up with thousands of tons of freight that did not come in on the barge. And these are vital supplies as well, right across the board, everything that the folks there need. Groceries, Mm -hmm. building materials, um, trailers, um, homes, which people get built down south and have been shipped up here. Uh, one of our contractors had a lot of material because he does contract work up here for Imperial Oil Resources. A lot of his material did not come in mm-hmm. because he had a contract to fulfill. He ended up paying in excess of half a million dollars out of his own business to get the material here. You were just in just in Ottawa and you made a presentation to the Senate Committee on Transport and Communication. What did you say to them? What was the message you wanted them to hear? The message we wanted them to hear was, if we can't have a resupply by barge in the summer, we can't have resupply by winter road in the short winter framework, where the heck is our highway? We were expecting going back to Diefenbaker. He called for a road to resources way back in the 60s to go through, we imagine, through the Mackenzie Valley. That did not take place. These 
uh, centre lines for that road were cut in the 1970s by the federal government. Then, because of some political issues, the road was not built. That's 50 years ago. We are not looking for a highway. Mm-hmm. We just need a safe road that we can drive on and get our materials in here affordably. The territorial government has said an all-season road to Norman Wells could be ready, could be completed by 2037. Does that reassure you? <laughs> yeah, when we heard that, that was when the jokes all started. Uh, we may not exist by then, because our big problem here is because of our cost of living, increases in our cost of living are going up 300 to 500% in our local grocery stores. Who would want to live here? Uh, I was in Edmonton a few months ago with my wife, and bought a few uh, bottles of pop and a few uh, bottles of water, just throw in the fridge in the hotel. I paid $18. I came back home and said, well, let's try this out up here. I got the same four bottles of pop, the same two bottles of water, $54. We're talking about major increases in the cost of living up here, and that means the date of 2037 to complete our road is blown that is just not acceptable, and something's got to be done sooner. Uh, we, as a community here, are going to get together with the new Northwest Territories government once they get a cabinet in place in the next couple of weeks, and we're going to offer to do a lot of the work on their behalf to come up with a business plan that we can present to Ottawa, who would fund the highway, and that is where we are right now. We can't sit back and wait for other people to look after us. Mayor Pope, thank you for your time and your candor. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to get the word out, and uh, you guys have a good day. Frank Pope is the mayor of Norman Wells, Northwest Territories. That's where we reached him. haunting, memorable, original theme song to Doctor Who. This week marks the 60th anniversary of the time-traveling, mind-bending science fiction show, which is being marked with the launch of three new hour-long specials this weekend. That's great, because being celebrated for one's accomplishments is important. At a minimum, you should be acknowledged. Unfortunately, while she was alive, electronic music pioneer Delia Derbyshire mostly wasn't. But she helped make that theme song as haunting and memorable as it is a sonic feat that she accomplished before the invention of electronic instruments, although her work went uncredited. In 2017, Delia Derbyshire was posthumously awarded an honorary doctorate from Coventry University. A fellow composer and sound designer at the BBC named Mark Ayres accepted it on her behalf, and he told our former host, Carol Off, what the moment meant. Mark, how did it feel to collect this award for Delia Derbyshire? Amazing and a long time coming. Um, Delia has been an inspiration to me all my life and to to many people in the UK who are interested in electronic music. We grew up listening to her work and the work of her colleagues at the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. And I remember hearing this name, you know, when I was 10 or 11 years old and thinking, who is this? Who is this lady? You know, what does she do? I love what I love these sounds. It's only really with the benefit of hindsight, I think, that we can see quite how groundbreaking it was and quite how... How special. How did she create that sound? 
Well, there were no synthesizers back then. Um, this was no way before anyone had really thought of them. They came in a, f- a few years later. So the way they were getting their sounds was by using what are called music concrete uh, techniques. Music concrete being a French expression, it means music from the sounds around you, music from found sounds. So the way they would work is they would find sounds from strictly non-musical sources. So the bass line of the Doctor Who theme, that sort of da-dun-da-dun that we all know, is a recording of a single plucked string on a piece of tape. They then played the tape back at various speeds to get the different pitches. They would then cut all the notes they needed out and then cut them to the right length with raised blade and then join them all together with splicing tape in the right order. And that's the way they worked and they did that on every line. And the melody incidentally was, was created again, um, no music, no, no synthesizers, but what they did have was test tone oscillators. This was test equipment and it was used for testing um, electronic circuits, but they had it marked in, in musical, uh, musical notes and she could uh, study ooh-ee-oo that is in the Doctor Who theme. She did that by literally turning the dial on the test equipment to create that melody, recorded it again onto a piece of tape, did that for all the different lines of the melody, then joined them together. And that's the sound that we hear back in the 1960s. And has that that theme, has it, it's been re-engineered since then, I would imagine. Yes, Delia um, altered it a bit during her lifetime. They created the original master, then they tampered with it with it a bit before it went on air. Then in 1967, she overdubbed some additional sounds onto it. In 1970 and 71, they did the same again, more new bits and pieces added, but always treating the original mix. That was when that cliffhanger scream was updated, right? That was the... Yes, the absolutely. Yeah, that was created by playing the very beginning of the theme where we join it backwards <laughs> through an echo chamber, speeding the tape up and then adding a, a synthesizer sound over the top of it and then playing it back the right way around again and then cutting it back on the, onto the beginning of the, of the master tape. I mean, just extraordinary. From 2017, that was BBC sound designer Mark Ayers speaking to our former host, Carol Off, about electronic music pioneer Delia Derbyshire, the unsung hero of the Doctor Who theme song. This week marks 60 years since that show first aired. FIFA is not exactly a bastion of gender equality. In its 119-year history, the organization that runs world soccer has never had a female president. In March, its current head Gianni Infantino was re-elected unopposed. Controversies over pay equity, gender-based discrimination, and corruption abound. And Hope Sogni is hoping to change all of that. If a World Cup winner can be sexually abused in plain sight, And if a manager sacked by his federation for his treatment of women can walk straight back into international football or the bidding process for a World Cup can be fast-tracked to hand it on a plate to a nation that oppresses women and the LGBTQ plus community, is it not time for the football world to say enough is enough? FIFA must hold up its own mirror and decide whether what they see looking back is in fact a beautiful game because all I see is a century of misogyny that has overshadowed its ability to truly be a game for all. Hope Sogni is running for the FIFA presidency, and if she wins, she'll be the first woman in the role. Except she's not actually running, or a woman. Hope Sogni is actually a hypothetical candidate powered by artificial intelligence and created with input from real-life female footballers. 
Maggie Murphy is chief among them. She's the CEO of the semi-professional Lewis Football Club in East Sussex, England, and we reached her today in Brighton. Maggie, why not put all all of this energy uh, behind an actual human woman's candidacy? I love this question because I do every day (laughs) and a lot of women in football around the world are constantly lifting each other up, um, pushing, promoting, supporting, championing. Um, In fact, the women's football network around the world is very, very tight. And that's why we kind of know some of the key challenges that face women around the world, regardless of country, regardless of Mm -hmm. continent. Um, And so, yeah, collectively, there's been a lot of women's voices that have gone into Hope. Um, So even though Hope might not be real, um, she definitely has a lot of real voices, real real, uh, input Mm -hmm. that has gone into her positions on things. And we'll talk about that voice and that input in just a moment. But I wonder what what it says about our world and and the FIFA world in, in particular that an AI woman, you think an AI woman might speak to or or reach more people to get your point across than an actual woman? Yeah, I I mean, I think that's exactly the the point that we're trying to make. We've never had a female FIFA president, even though, you know, the world of football has plenty of issues, plenty of challenges. A lot of people don't particularly like a lot of things in the football world. So it made us wonder a little bit how decisions could be different if we had a woman in charge. Um, And there are lots of women working in football. Uh, They just don't often get allocated significant decision-making roles. They don't get elevated. Um, I know of women personally who've been elected into a position and then told not to say anything if they want to keep that seat. (laughs) You know, and I think there's, there's others who are not able to speak up at all. And I think that's one of the other things that Hope can do. She can speak for the women around the world that are in positions but might face repercussions if they actually said what they thought and who have to tread a very diplomatic line every single day. I, I chuckled when you said that, but it's it's actually infuriating. I think it's fair if I, if I say that, and it must be for the women who, who experience this. When when those stories are shared, does it invigorate women to, to push further or do you find that it's, it's keeping them on, on the sidelines? I think that it depends it's why the network is so important because i think that you know individually people can be crushed by the barriers that they face but when they have that collective network around them you know there's a little bit more support to to help people Mm -hmm. understand that first of all it's not a completely unique situation but because it's not unique it means that there's other people that have experienced it and might have some lessons learned that they Mm -hmm. could apply but i and i and i think the other thing is that you know hope is drawn from some absolute incredible people people who I admire and look up to uh, every day who are forging a path. And, you know, I'd love it if those women were not special. Um, They are special to me, but I just like even more of them if if possible. Well, let's talk about about their input and the experience you had of programming Hope. Yeah, so I'm not a techie person at all. Um, (laughs) So basically when I was working with the designers and the agency team, they were kind of saying to me, why does why does this woman not exist? And first of all, I had to say, no, they really do exist. <laughs> uh, check, check out Moya Dodd. She's one of my absolute personal heroes, a former Matildas vice captain. Uh, and she has done a lot of work in governance and football. She's the constant champion of women's football, but also women in football. So I was like, OK, anything that Moya Dodd has said, written, talked about, scoop all of that up and get that into, into Hope's brain. 
Um, and that's the same for other people. Like uh, there's an incredible human rights lawyer called Kat Craig. She's based here in England and she was working with a number of Afghan female footballers who uh, actually had a rape case against the president of the Football Association in Afghanistan. So she worked tirelessly to help those players through that process. So whatever Cat Craig has said on the issue of sexual abuse in football, scoop that up, figure out what Cat Craig would do if she was in charge and get that into Hope's brain. And so we did that with a number of people um, who who have, you know, just such an incredible breadth of experience and put that into, in, into, into the hope. hope brain. And then, you know, Hope then can synthesize all of those positions and she comes to a position herself. And how did you uh, come so she, to that name? We toyed around with the name. We weren't quite sure what she should be called. Um, there are actually a number of uh, brilliant women called Hope that mm-hmm. work in uh, in football, but it was more, you know, what's a name that people are going to um, look at and go, yeah, we know what you're getting at. Understood. And 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 what she looks like and how she delivers all of those words. How did you decide those things? Yeah. Well, actually, I really didn't trust Hope when I first talked to her, um, even though she was saying the right things. I realized that I had a barrier up and I was trying to figure out why. And I realized it was because she had been made to sound very corporate uh, as a lot of men working in football at that level sound. And so I I spoke with the developers and we said, you know, I I just don't think that I trust her. I want her to sound more like a female leader that that I would admire. It's interesting. That was their default though, right? The developers? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And 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 it took me a while to realize that that's what it was. I couldn't figure out what it was. Um, and what we ended up doing was just naming some female leaders, not necessarily from football, that we actually respect and admire and, and like to listen to. And those are people like Jacinda Ardern or Michelle Obama, even mm-hmm. Megan Rapinoe. And so that's why Hope's accent it sounds a little bit American, but it's more like an international yeah. English. And we should mention Hope is a woman of color. And, and that was not an accident, I assume. No, definitely not an accident. I mean, for all the time we might spend talking about how women are marginalized from positions of power, you can say that for people of color, whether male or female. And so this definitely had to have an intersectional lens as well. It's a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you, Maggie. Thank you so much for having me. Maggie Murphy is the CEO of Lewis Football Club and the co-creator of Hope Sogni, an AI candidate for the FIFA presidency. We reached her in Brighton, England. When Kamloops gathers to celebrate its annual Santa Claus parade, it will be a big night for one man in particular. Well, two men. It's Obviously, it's a big night for Santa. But I was referring to Tom Hammer. For three decades, Mr. Hammer has played a major role in the Kamloops parade, including 27 years as its marshal. But after this weekend, he will be hanging up his safety vest for good. Doug Herbert of Daybreak Kamloops caught up with Mr. Hammer before Sunday's big event. My name's Tom Hammer. I started working part-time at Thompson Park Mall for a friend of mine during the 90s. And um, he asked me that Christmas if I would help him with the parade. And I said, sure. So basically my job was just making sure the floats went to the back of the Thompson Park Mall parking lot before they started parking and taking people off and unloading. And uh, I've been doing it ever since. 
when I started with the parade in 93, it was the Thompson Park Mall's way of getting Santa Claus to the mall for their Christmas display. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And, and I guess you've seen lots of changes to the parade over the years. Yeah, but the biggest one was when we went to the night parade just a couple of years back. That sure makes for a great parade. It, it's, it's truly a beautiful spectacle. When you stand in the corner of 3rd and Seymour and look straight up 3rd Avenue just before the parade starts and all the floats are ready to go and they've all got their lights on and 3rd Avenue is completely full of people. It's magical. What keeps you coming back every year? Is it that magic? Yeah, it's the way I feel when it's done. I'm exhausted, but, you know, it's, it's great. And now, of course, I have grandkids. And they know that it's their pause parade. They call it pause parade. I mean, <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it's great to have that. And I, at the end of the parade, I usually follow Santa Claus's float in a golf cart. And I have my grandkids sitting beside me. Are there any memories from years past that stand out? Years ago, we had no volunteers. We used to scrounge and scrounge for volunteers. And we had this older couple and they used to volunteer every year just as route marshals. They'd come and they'd sit outside the McDonald's on 3rd and Victoria. And one year he showed up and she wasn't there. And it nearly broke my heart. And I think he only did two years after that and then he was no longer there. And they were volunteers that had been with, with the parade since I started. And it was really sad to see that they weren't there anymore, you know? I guess you've made a lot of relationships over oh, the years. Uh, tons of friends. Yeah, it, it, it's been a, a lifetime thing for me, yes. That was Tom Hammer speaking to the CBC's Doug Herbert. This Sunday, after 27 years, Mr. Hammer is retiring from his role as the Marshal of the Kamloops Santa Claus Parade. New York, of course, is the city that never sleeps. Ottawa, meanwhile, is known as the city that never wakes up. It may be the capital of Canada, but its nightlife is typically considered lowercase, which isn't fair, which is why Ottawa has set up a nightlife economy action plan, which will be presided over by a nightlife commissioner who will be responsible for ensuring the concerns of the nightlife industry see the light of day. The city is slated to vote on the position in December. In the meantime, we'll talk to an expert who has been a party to all kinds of parties. Deke LaBelle is the general manager of Ottawa's oldest bar, Chateau Lafayette. She's in Ottawa. Deke, what's a fun night out like at Chateau Lafayette? <laughs> Every night's a fun night at Chateau Lafayette. <laughs> but What makes it fun there? The laugh is, um, it's a simple place. You know, we're not, we're not mixed up with a whole bunch of bells and whistles. You can uh, check your pretension and uh, whatever at the door and, and come on in and just relax and have a good time. Yeah, laugh is built in. No cover, okay. Our food is simple our, and made in-house. Our, our prices include tax, so you don't have to mask. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> it's a simple, it's a good night out. One of Canada's oldest bars we should mention there since uh, 1849. And laugh is, is right in the name, as you said. So mm -hmm. built in, fun built in. It sounds like I've never been, but good to know uh, for future reference. You've been on the scene in Ottawa on the nightlife scene for, for quite some time now. But, you know, it does seem to have the city has this reputation 
for being the city that fun forgot. Do you? How do you think it has earned that title? I don't think it deserves that title, to be honest. One person's opinion does not a city reputation make. And in my opinion, fun is what you make it. And you're only going to find a boring night out if you're boring. So... Um, <laughs> Sorry for those people out there that uh, that agree with that sentiment, but I disagree. I, I think Ottawa has a lot of hidden gems. It has a lot a lot to offer and a lot of potential. So um, try me, try and uh, <laughs> try and stump me on a on a on a poor night out. <laughs> Deke is going to make sure you have fun. Are you are you gunning for this position? First of all, for nightlife commissioner, I should ask. Heck no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I I could probably do a pretty good job at it, but uh, I'm uh, I think that there's there's bigger fish to fry, and I'm not sure that this position is um, necessary. Um, I, I think it is uh, a I think it's redundant to be honest. Um, I think that there's enough people working in uh, you know on on this in Ottawa, that, and there's enough other issues that should take precedent before um, a role like this is introduced. Um, so, that's my point of view. <laughs> well, that's why we're talking to you, to get your point of view. City Council hasn't decided on this yet. They're, they're going to vote on whether to create this new position of nightlife commissioner. You don't think Ottawa needs one. We should mention other other cities around the world have nightmares, Amsterdam, London, uh, London, England, that is. Those phrases you used, hidden gem, lots of potential. How are those going to come to the fore? How will more people know about those gems and that potential if you don't get someone like this? What should the city be doing in your view? I think we need to focus or spend a little bit more attention on what's already being done to address the issues that they're trying to solve with this nighttime commissioner. And, you know, what I'm hearing are, you know, better access to lists of events and entertainment. Well, I can provide you with five to 10 people who are already doing those things. Um, You know, better use of um, the directories and the, the sites that are already available with, you know, the byword market is, um, it's, it's undergoing a lot of changes right now in terms of, you know, governance and how, how the area is, is managed. And so improvements are already underway for, for finding those, the, the, the spots and the, the smaller events that, that may not get as much attention as the big ones. But if you're capable of using the Internet, the information is out there. So... <laughs> If, if it's just a matter of communication, I don't think that's a full-time job. What's a perfect Friday night for you in Ottawa? For me, when I go out, what I look for are three things. Great food, great people, and a great view. And that can come from many different aspects, whether it's um, the view happens to be the band I'm watching or it's the, the view I'm looking out at or it's the people I'm watching, or, um, you know, the vibe going on around. But it's, um, those are the things I look for when I go out. So those can be had anywhere. And that fun is who you're with and what you're eating. And if you're doing things that you love doing with people you love, watching things that are beautiful, how can you have a bad time? So what's, what are you, where are you going tonight? Where am I going tonight? Actually, um, I'm going to tell you about where I went on Wednesday. Okay. Because I got to do Wednesday night in Ottawa is a good time. Okay, that's a plot twist. Right? So um, I it was very last minute, and I was invited to the NAC Orchestra. And uh, the tickets, uh, the last minute tickets are very, very affordable. 
um, and I experienced culture and wine and 12 minutes from from my home and uh, and it was an absolutely wonderful night out and I couldn't believe the number of people that were out as well and our walk home you know around 10 p.m. through the Byward Market was absolutely beautiful there was hustle and bustle and people uh, everywhere you looked enjoying uh, enjoying the evening so you never know what <laughs> you might like so open your mind to new experiences try something new. I didn't know I was a fan of classical music, but the experience <laughs> made it that. Sounds like a really good time, Deke. Thank you. Mm-hmm. My pleasure. Deke LaBelle is the general manager of Chateau Lafayette. We reached her in Ottawa. Artists draw their inspiration from many different places, but in a recent project, composer Sophie Kastner didn't just draw inspiration from a particular source. She also drew the foundation of the piece itself. For years, a NASA project has translated data from telescopes into sounds. And now Ms. Kastner has helped the center turn those data into sheet music that can be played by musicians. Here's a sample of the resulting music. It's our sound of the day. of composer Sophie Kastner, who wrote that piece for musicians based on NASA telescope data. It's our sound of the day. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.